0: Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvaroski.
1: Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, Matt Popsel, the godfather of talent optimization, joins the show. Matt gives us a breakdown of what talent optimization is, how to ensure you're building a great team, and he drops one of the best lines on the podcast about how to gain a competitive advantage over your competition. If you want to improve the innovation, the engagement, and get your foundational elements of a high-performance team in place at your company, you need to start off with the psychological safety of your team. If you reach out to me, Rob, at HighPerformanceNarrative.com, you can, you, we can talk about a fearless organization scan, the best way to start measuring and get on the right track in, of improving the psychological safety of your team. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me, Rob, at HighPerformanceNarrative.com, and we'll get that in the pipeline for you. Lastly, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform. Please tell, share the podcast with your friends and leaders in your life, and check out EliteHighPerformance.com slash leadership for everything around this show. Everybody, thanks for listening. This one is a great episode, and here's the interview with Matt Popesel. We are back. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and as always, we have our in-house leadership mindset coach, Susan Hobson, a Bruins fan. I just threw it out oh, there just to yes. just to slaughter her in the beginning. Now Susan, how are you? To,
0: I'm <laughs> gonna have to go back into lockdown in Toronto, when we were just getting the news that we're finally being let out of our cages. Thanks, Rob. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, you know, I grew up in Ottawa, so I, I was a Sens fan uh, growing Great. up. So, so I don't like the Leafs either. Um, anyways.
0: <laughs> I did not say that for the record, everybody in Toronto.
1: <laughs> but I got a quote uh, to start us off, as always, from... Uh, I went back to Zach Mercurio, former guest of the show, and he's talking about basically stepping up and creating these environments for sharing. And so his quote says... All individuals in the organization must know how to create a space for others to share their feedback, ideas, and perspectives free of fear. However, positional leaders have the most influence in maintaining the space because of their unique power. And I think it's something that we talk about this show, right, is leadership starts with you. And so, yes, even, you know, you don't have direct reports, but it doesn't matter. You can still curate that space it's just, and again, right? But you do have power if you are one of those hierarchical, well, if you have hierarchical power too. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that
0: was my little Friday like agreement with you, my body language.
1: So we got a special guest and the reason why we started off this show talking a little bit about the Bruins, we got straight from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, Matt so, Matt, how are you?
2: Doing great, Rob. Susan, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Oh, it's- we're so excited to have you. The godfather of talent optimization. I can't wait to dig into what this is all about, Hey, eh, Rob?
1: I know. I was just going to say, like, I, I obviously went to college at MIT, so I spent four years in Boston. Um, right. I love this city, Matt. But I mean, again, Susan mentioned it, right? So LinkedIn, you 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 say you're the godfather of talent optimization. Let's hear about that.
2: Yeah, talent optimization is a relatively new discipline. It's all about how do we align our people with the business strategy? And it sounds straightforward, but I find in my experience working with executives and other leaders that oftentimes we think about those two things differently. So we are either focused on the technical aspects of the business or we might think about the people, but we don't really think about how those two things relate to one another all that much. Yeah. So for me that my position is really all about evangelizing this new discipline that's all about helping employees and uh, all types of the aspects of the workforce really work together at their best to accomplish the mission.
0: I can hardly dig into all of that. but tell So some,
2: much, so much to unpack. So I know. much <laughs> to
0: unpack. I'm salivating over here, but I just want to make sure we start here. One of the things we always like to get into alignment on with our guests is what leadership actually means to them.
2: Yeah, for me, leadership really comes down to three key pillars. Uh, the first is self-mastery. So you have to be really good at your job. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to be taken seriously as a leader. The second is inspiring others because leadership isn't a solo act at all. It's all about how do I, and I can't compel people just to do it because I say so. I've got to inspire them to rally around the, the vision that I have or the mission and try to help them to achieve it. And the third is delivering results. Leadership is not pointless. It's not kumbaya. It's not just about the people part. There is a job to be done as well inside organizations. So for me, self-mastery, inspiring others, and delivering results, those three things come together. Uh, that, that's leadership to me.
1: I love that. And Matt, maybe before we, we start digging into talent optimization, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and like how did you end up get, like almost creating a new discipline?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, I think for me personally, I, you know, I have a military background. I spent six years in the Marine Corps, so I really had a, a foundation of leadership from that perspective. And When I joined the civilian world, I thought, well, that's how adults behave. That was the only experience I would ever had. We just <laughs> trained people how to be great leaders, right? Every every company must do this, and uh, obviously, I was I was uh, sad to find out that that's certainly rare, right? Not 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 the norm at all. So I really gained a lot of my perspective by being a really terrible manager. You know, I focused on the technical aspects of the business. I had a trunk full of audiobooks all about all the financial drivers and innovation, all these great things, but it was devoid of people. And right. so only when I started to get frustrated with the results I was getting and it just didn't feel natural to me. I'm a very people centric person by nature. Did I start to be human at work? And then all of a sudden I took a people first approach. It felt better. I got better results. And that really shaped the trajectory of my, my leadership development and my craft over the next uh, several years. What happened was I was in a very technical company building software for them, and I really enjoyed it, but it didn't really resonate with me. The purpose of the software was really uh, a very, as I mentioned, technical in nature. But I love the people part. So I decided to get my PhD in psychology and study leadership and coaching, all these types of things. So I would build software by day, and I would study leadership and psychology by night. And it was really odd to me that these two things didn't really come together that well. Why do we not take a data-driven approach to people? So I ended up joining a company that I work for now called the Predictive Index, and it has a behavioral assessment all about personality. It really has uh, great relationships with clients to understand how what we know about people could drive the business. And about uh, it's going back about four years now. We hit upon this reality that we weren't seeing companies get the business results they wanted even though they had really robust strategies. And it's because they skipped steps in the middle when it came to the people part. Right. So we ended up calling this talent optimization. It was really, how do we maximize employee performance and experience? Because if we do that, then we're going to get the business results we want and do right by our people along the way. So that's how talent optimization came to be a thing. And then for myself, you know, as the, as the self-proclaimed godfather, it's really just a chance to shine a light on there's a better way to run our businesses with and through our people. And it doesn't have to be a mystery. We finally codified how to do that in four key areas that we can talk about. And uh, it really just is, a, again, a better way to get a business result. That's really important. But also to have a better retention, better employee experience along the way.
1: Ooh, I, I want to dig. So you, you mentioned skipping steps with their people yeah Yikes. and that f- not delivering the business results what were those steps that they skipped yeah so what i we found
2: is that we can break down the vast majority of talent activities into one of four things that all leadership teams and all leaders must do one is design winning teams how the decisions that we make about who's on the team how we interact as a team in pursuit of a mission so that's the first one the second one is hire top talent you've got to be able to attract and select And and close, if you will, those best candidates. The third is inspire employees to greatness. So we can't just have a transactional relationship with our people. We've got to have a deep, meaningful connection with them. We have to help them uh, get ready for their current tour of duty as well as the next one, invest in them, career path, et cetera. And then finally, how do we diagnose employee performance and experience issues so that we can get them resolved? And those four things taken together are the the aptitudes, I call them that make up talent optimization. And when you start to find that we've skipped one of those steps, Susan, Rob, it shows up in one of three easy to identify areas. One is that you miss your business targets. If you've got a dashboard that's red or yellow when you want it to be green, that's evidence that you've skipped some people steps. The second is strategy risk. Every executive knows when they lie awake at night and they're like, you know, over the next 12 to 15 months, we need to do this thing. And I don't know if it's going to work out great. That is an indicator that you have a people challenge. And the third is a people tax. Whenever there's friction in an organization, poor communication, decision making, conflict, turnover, replacement, all that kind of stuff, it shows up as a people tax. And it just, it's not that the job doesn't get done, but there's friction and, a, and an added tax that uh, you, you shouldn't have to pay. If any of those three conditions are present, that's how you know you've skipped some steps. And then the steps help you figure out what you can do to get back on track.
1: Ooh, <laughs> there's a lot to break down there, Matt. I love this. I, I mean, for me, like what I what I struggle and what people ask me a lot about this work is like, what are the business results of leaning into people? Like, obviously you've done some more quantifying that, like, what would you, how would you answer that question?
2: Yeah. The reality is that any business problem is a people problem. When you get down to it, you're going to find that if, if we're struggling to compete, maybe we have a competitor who's crushing it. Why? Cause they're doing a better job with their people. Like we have access to the same resources, you know, what, what's going on here. And so when you start looking at somebody's like, well, the, the problem is, is that, uh, you know, we have too many defects on the line. The process isn't working. Well, somebody designed the process. Somebody's executing the process. Like what is happening on the people side? You can trace it back. If you ask enough questions, then all of a sudden, and and even if you get down to, we need to find a way to be creative. Our business model changed, you know, whatever it might be, it's still going to come down to a people issue. So I always try to really say, even if we think we have technical problems in the business and we might, it's going to be people who fix it. So that's why every business problem is a people problem. You find any metric you want in a business on the marketing side, manufacturing doesn't matter. And you can trace it back to saying, who is the team that's accountable for making this work? And have they designed themselves to be a winning team? Do they have the level of awareness and coaching and, and cohesion to be able to perform at their best? Do they have the top talent or do they have the wrong people in the wrong spots in places? And so on and so forth.
1: <laughs> Matt, I... I'm curious because I, I was listening to Simon Sinek's podcast um, a week ago, and he was talking to another guy who was in the military, uh, actually a, a gentleman, I forget what his name was, but he jumped on a grenade and saved basically his friend's life. And what he mentioned was that in the military, what you say about people around you is that you love them. You may not like them, but you love them. You love them like a brother or sister. And he said that when he transitioned into the, to the civilian world, it just became like and dislike. There was never, no one ever used the word love. And I think for me, like I would say I loved my former teammates in college or in high school, but I never love anybody I work with do you see that dynamic and like how does that dynamic shift into the real workplace
2: yeah to me that story really speaks about uh, transcendence right so you, in that case what you care about what you're willing to do has has left your your perspective of yourself and it's gone to in that case the welfare of of your teammate right. some people will transcend and really give everything and, and, and go through Herculean effort to uh, fulfill their, their purpose, their mission. Think about a solopreneur who's trying to get their business off the ground. They'll work 100 hours a week because they're so into bringing their, their idea to life. They've transcended their own welfare, in some cases to their own detriment, <laughs> to, to make something possible. What I find is that, in, in, and it was certainly very easy in the military because you have such a, an ingrained purpose. The security of the nation is a powerful motivator. What happens when all of a sudden you're working for a dry cleaner for your first job out of high school? Uh, yeah. Well, okay. That's a little bit tougher to have a purpose-driven you know, sort of motivation. But having said that, if we end up with either a transactional relationship at work, then we're not going to have a lot of loyalty. You're not going to have a lot of discretionary effort. Those types of things are just not going to be there. But if you have that transcendent relationship, which is either I love my teammates so much that I do anything for them, or... I love the mission and what we're all about and what we're trying to accomplish as a team. One or both of those things present. You can see a similar transcendence, maybe not like the military where you're going to jump on a grenade, but I do think that it's possible to overachieve simple transactional work where I show up because they pay me. And when the clock is at five o'clock, I'm out. You know, I worked at, 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 at was uh, uh, giving a presentation at, at a large insurance company in Hartford, Connecticut. They said, "Don't stand at the bottom of the escalator at four o'clock because you'll get trampled." Uh, <laughs> that, that is a it's transactional like. culture, yeah, right? Totally. It's saying as soon as I can get out of here and not yeah. get fired,
1: I'm out.
0: The time card time. I've
1: been at a lot of facilities like that. Um, Exactly.
2: Right. Uh, (laughs) Versus like the Silicon Valley startups where they're writing code into all hours of the morning, because they're just so into bringing their baby to life. Right. That's a transformative, or I should say a transcendent mission purpose experience. And, and ideally, like I said, yeah, both I'm so into the mission and I'm so into the people pursuing the mission. That's what happens in the military. You can get glimpses of that in, in the civilian world and the best companies do.
0: Yeah, this is uh, reminding me of you said Silicon Valley. These companies out there, like Google, might have been one of the first ones to really study the science of peak state and, and the flow state. And I think you're speaking to that, aren't you? You're tripping the switch on the intrinsic sense of motivation. That really is a, a massively important aspect of how you get teams in flow, right?
2: Definitely, and I think that even beyond the flow, when you think about generational values, you know, we first saw this, I would say, with uh, the millennial generation, very purpose-driven, very service, very conscious about things like sustainability, and now Gen Z is is taking that to the next level. You know, we really want to understand what our our employers are all about, and you could go to a party and say, "Oh, I work for so and so," and if it's not a company held in higher regard, they're like, "Ooh, you work for them? Like, why would you work for them?" All of a sudden, your own identity is you know, is is impinged because of who you're working for and even their brands. So now you're seeing that consumerism is, I don't want to purchase a product from a company who I don't, I'm don't i not into their purpose. Right. And if you aren't clear about what your purpose is, that's almost just as bad. Now, you, right. now you're not standing for anything. So I feel like this is just a natural evolution of what was optional and kind of rarefied air for the best companies back in the day is now table stakes you have to be about something that people can believe in and you have to be transparent about that. And so uh, that helps really attract the right employee base. And it gets people into that flow state because now it's like, I will give you my discretionary effort to make our collective mission a reality.
0: How exciting is that? Way to go Gen Z. (laughs) I, I spend my day job trying to convince my, my companies and my leaders To really get behind this whole, you know, intrinsic sense of drive, right? And everything you're speaking to in terms of, listen, it's coming. Like, if if it's coming. The generation that's coming up, I mean, this is exactly what they're going to look for when they decide where they want to invest their finite resources of time, energy, and focus.
2: Yeah, if you want access to top talent, you'd better be clear about what your values are. You'd better be clear about what your purpose is, the good you're doing in this world. And the other thing that I see quite often with this newest generation to enter the workforce is a demand for transparency. Right. And and a lot of times, like I was giving a talk the other day and, and one of the audience members came and said, we're transparent with our people. And I said, okay, uh, you're giving them the good news but do you give them the bad news? And I said, well, that's a good point. You know, we tell them when we lose a client only if we've won a client so we can balance it out. I said, you know, they, they want the whole story. They, think about it. Gen Z has grown up with complete transparency through social and through access to information. They know everything. Like they, yeah. you get exposed to everything. So when you go to your company and they only want to tell you good news, like Pollyanna, and only talk about when the numbers are good and no, no, everything's fine. Don't don't pay any attention. They don't to trust else. it. No, why would you trust that? <laughs> so now it's like, we, gotta, we have to be completely transparent. The other thing is, is uh, when we always ask for feedback, companies have fallen in love with surveys and asking for feedback. But Gen Z is like, um, you know, I, I realize that uh, you collected my feedback on that. Um, you know, I'm actually expecting you to do something about it. And we're like, what? <laughs> we we heard you. We listened. You're like, yeah, listening is followed up yeah. by doing. Okay. So and they're like, oh really? Well, what do you want to have input on? And they're like, um, yeah. everything. Wait, whoa, everything. Yeah, we want everything from, you know, the snacks that we have in the lunchroom to are we really going to take on that customer who's got this crappy mm-hmm. reputation yeah. to the strategy? We'd like to have some input on that, too. And you're like, where is this coming from? And you're like, you know, it's coming from us. Like, this is this is what we expect. And, you know, employers have to realize that if you want top talent and this is the next generation to that's really going it's, to it's the most populous generation right now. This is the future. So you better come to grips with it.
0: It's so exciting to hear all of this. And I know this is something that the predictive index, right, works on. We had a guest last week, Zerk says, uh, was talking about the importance of not just looking at the skill set on the resume, because that that day is long gone. You need right. to know about the personality and you need to know about what intrinsically motivates these people, right, to, ins- to ensure they're going to be the right cultural fit, <laughs>
2: Yeah, exactly. I I think that it's really hard to find somebody who's got all the perfect mix of skills for the role that you are hiring them into. And even if they did, the world is moving so quickly that we need new skills, right? So the reality is that I can learn new skills because there's lots of different ways I can learn, but changing who I am in terms of my behavioral makeup and and my personality, that's only non-negotiable and and only small kind of nudges here and there are, are really possible. So better to hire for behavioral fit and say, I can train you, but oh, I can't rewire you completely. Oh, so uh, I, I definitely am a huge fan of that is, is understand the the behavioral makeup of the person who's going to who, hire for fit and then, you know, train for skills. Love that. Love that perspective.
1: So Matt, I want to go through those four categories. Like when you say you, we need to design a winning team, yep. what does that mean? And, and like, what is a winning team to you? Yeah, so if we think
2: about uh, I think of two sides of the same coin. I always ask what's the work to be done and who's doing the work. Now, what that means is that in most organizations, the most interesting work is team-based work. Like we rarely have soloists who are doing amazing things all by themselves. Instead, right, right. it's a team. So, what we tend to do is to try to unfold information in a way that's digestible. So, let's start with just the team leader. Every team leader, myself included, has natural strengths Or in my case, has more blind spots, right? Truly understanding what are the gaps in your game? And everybody has them. So how do we create awareness around that and understand my my million-dollar question? How is this showing up in your work? How's the good stuff showing up? And how are the blind spots showing up? Because they are. Once the leader is like, okay, I understand about myself. I can have that awareness. Then we move on to, well, let's take a look at the individual team members, go through a similar exercise but then recognize that a team is made up more than just the individuals. It's the collection, the cohesion, the interaction. Every unique combination of team members is going to have a specific dynamic. And that dynamic is going to have its own strengths and its own challenges. But do we collectively have awareness of how we approach our work and what's great about that and how we approach our work and what's not so great about that? And then finally, you're ready then to bring in that last bit, which is what is the work we're being asked to do? Where are we naturally, either as a collective or some of our individuals, aligned to that work, which should flow freely and easily? And where are we not aligned? We have gaps. Now, whenever you have a gap, then the question is, what can the team do? Well, we could stretch. So we were just talking about, I could upskill. Like maybe if I need to be more data-driven on my sales team, I could take a class on sales operations and analytics. Great. Or what if I say that maybe there's somebody else in the building who's naturally good at analytics? Can we partner up with them and they can help our sales team be more data-driven? Or can I make a hire? Can I go out on the street, find somebody who's naturally good and bring my team's gap down? Now, all of a sudden, we've closed a gap. So lots of things we can do, but we can only do any of those things if we have awareness. Otherwise, if we just keep doing what we always do and it's just not working and people are frustrated, that's where you're going to see the performance and the employee experience I talked about earlier start to fall apart.
0: Awareness before intelligence, right, Rob? You can't solve it before you acknowledge it first. That is the cardinal rule, right? And growth.
2: So true. So true. And I think somewhere along the line in there too is acceptance. I think we have to do a, a better job and, and I've tried to do this and I still got a lot of work to do just to accept both the good and the improvement opportunities and say, you know, this is not a strength of our team and that's okay, mm-hmm. but not doing anything about it, that's not okay. We've got to do something. We have to take action. We can't just allow things to go unsaid or unimproved because then not only does our performance suffer, our team's experience suffers, the business result suffers. Mm-hmm. So leaders can't abdicate their responsibility to develop awareness and to take action on what they learn.
1: Ooh,
0: <laughs> right. Self-responsibility. That's what leadership is. At least that's where it starts. Right. Because if you're responsible for helping these individuals maximize their potential, like how are you going to do that if you're not modeling any of this or you don't have any of these strategies that you're asking them to lean into?
2: Exactly. Right. It's out I love of that.
0: alignment.
2: <laughs> I love that. You know, lead by example. A lot of times it's like, uh, you know, we need to raise our game. And then the people are looking at later going, yeah, you first.
1: Mm-hmm. You go ahead. You know, we'll watch.
2: We'll watch. Because if yeah. you're unwilling to do it, then, you know, we're probably going to get busy with our own day to day.
1: I think. About, I, yeah, I see that a lot.
0: <laughs> how about inspiring your people? I feel like this one always gets left on the shelf for leaders for some odd reason. In fact, what do you think the reason for that is? Why do leaders overlook inspiration and the importance of inspiration as the fuel for the growth
2: <laughs> yeah i'll give leaders some some benefit of the doubt and say that yeah. they're well intentioned but they get very fixated on the result That's
0: right. and it's very
2: easy to fall in love with our technologies and our processes and our metrics and our dashboards and 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 kind of look past the fact that it's our people that are producing all those results. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a lot of ambiguity. Like, what do I do? Like we, we don't teach this stuff in schools. They certainly don't teach it in business school. They don't Ooh. have ready access to the tools. They're all, it's just all too rare that we really help our leaders uh, really get good at that. Like I mentioned in my Marine Corps experience, you know, you were taught everything about leadership from day one. They just didn't want to assume you knew their way of leading people. So they were really great at that, but then in the in the civilian world, when do we really formally train our leaders? Informally train our leaders? You know, unfortunately, it's it's more rare than than we would like. So I think that those are some big reasons. When I think about inspiring employees, I think about the leader, of course, and that privileged relationship they have with the direct report, mm-hmm. and how do you actually? provide sort of that connection to our collective mission? How do I take an active interest in you as a human being? How do I help you by holding up a mirror the way a coach should? And at the same time, encourage and support you and give you the resources you need to grow and stretch and hold you accountable and be an accountability partner. Like all those things fall into that direct relationship. But even from the time that I joined organizations and I had no direct reports, I was still a leader. I still tried to create an environment that made those around me better. I still try to bring positivity and optimism and helpful suggestions and ideas and thoughtful questions. Like you can, there's no excuse ever at any level to not be a leader. You just, that's what you should do. And so inspiration can come from connecting to the mission, sharing your enthusiasm. There's lots of ways to do uh, that type of inspiration, make that type of inspiration accessible to people. Mm -hmm.
1: Matt, I want to dig into the hiring top talent. Like, I was reading an article the other day about basically about um, this person who went for a job interview and they had like 12 rounds of interviews. And then eventually they just decided, eh, that's enough. And (laughs) I've had the same experience with one of the big uh, management consulting firms. I think I was scheduled to have 15 to 18 different interviews. And after a while, I was like, "Eh, this is kind of a lot.
0: The gauntlet.
1: Yeah. Um, And they said like after two or three, basically the improvement in terms of like the percentage of getting it quote unquote right is like 1%. So how do we ensure that we're hiring great people or how do we like maximize our probability of finding that person that'll fit with us?
2: Yeah. Let's take the employer side, the employee side first. So in your experience, you're thinking on the one hand, well, this is a pain, like having to go back or get on the phone or do whatever, all these different rounds. This is, this is time-consuming. It's frustrating. My candidate experience isn't very good. But what you should also be observing is these people don't trust each other. They don't trust each other to make decisions about top talent. They either aren't calibrated on what top talent looks like, or there's a lot you know happening here that they don't trust one another, probably when it comes to how they run their business, much less how they choose the best people. So I would be weary of that. Now, you know people are going to want to have some face time. They're going to want to have a chance to weigh in and develop an opinion. So there's, there's a certain amount of that you, you would expect, but when it gets to be too much, you're like, what's really going on here, right? From the employer side, to me, it's important to take a kind of blank sheet of paper and walk your own candidate experience. Where does it begin? When you visit your website, what kind of impression are you leaving? Are your values clear? What's the application process like? How do those forms look? Like how automated is it versus when do I get my first human touch? Like just walk it like a secret shopper type approach. And you might be surprised at what you find and then do the similar sort of thing as best you can with other comparable firms that you think you're kind of competing with either in your local market or in your industry, just to take a look around, at least at the, the what they call the top of the funnel, right? Because that level of awareness about the candidate experience is is really important. The second thing is, I think you've got to train your people. If you're, Let's say you're in talent acquisition. This is the only thing you do. You have so many at-bats to interview candidates and run your process. What about a hiring manager? How many hires are they going to make in a year? Two or three? How are they going to get good at what they're supposed to do if you don't train them? So I think don't just assume that because somebody is a leader in an organization, even a good one, that they're really going to be a great ambassador for your brand in the hiring process, that they're going to show up to the interview having done some more prep than just six seconds of scan on the way to jump on the call. Cause you're running late. Like these are not, this is not the way to attract and select top talent. Like you're sending a message every time. So I, I would say that, you know, walk that experience, educate your hiring team, give them the tools they need to have sort of that insider advantage about what, how it makes this person tick and how are we going to make the right decision? Um, minimize bias throughout as best you can. Like all that stuff is just super important.
0: And how do we retain the top talent once we follow all those steps and we actually attract the right people and we get them onboarded?
2: Yeah. I, I think if you've uh, made your purpose clear, people have connected to it, mm-hmm. assuming that you have a, a good culture, one of trust and transparency and uh, something that's about something and that you don't just put your mission and your values on the white room, uh, the boards around the right. conference room. <laughs> you know. But But if you say you're all about integrity or uh, you know, employee welfare, and you have a top-performing salesperson who's acting like a jackass. Yeah. If you don't do anything about it, that's going to speak a lot louder about what your culture really is.
0: <laughs> I agree. Than, you
2: know, so so I think that assuming all those things are there, to me, retention is about uh, investment. I think especially the the early career workers want to be invested in. Saying, yeah. I don't necessarily know exactly where I want to take the course of my career, but you, if you invest in me, I'll be loyal to you. Uh, and the other is flexibility. I think that the reality is that people's life situations change, people's uh, interests and awareness changes, uh, lots mm-hmm. of things can happen. So I feel like the more that an employer can be flexible and sort of meet in the middle, I think that can go a long way towards retention as well. And the one thing I have found is, especially when we talk about retaining top performers, the thing that that top performers hate more than anything else is having to work with people who aren't top performers.
0: Yeah. So I know. If you
2: if you tolerate mediocrity, because it's just easier to not have the conversation, That is going to tweak your best performers. And you should not be surprised if you're not willing to take action on the people that you wouldn't mind if they left. Don't be surprised if you can't hold on to the ones that you wish did.
0: Right. I have a lot of leaders who fear that, right? When we're working on setting the standards of excellence, right? Where's that bar going to be? They have a really hard time with, well, what about all the like mid-level performers? Is this going to be demotivating for them if they're not hitting that mark? What would you say to them?
2: I think that's a very uh, likely possibility. And I think that if you open the door and you connect with them as to why they're middle performers, then the question is, is, am I doing something that's blocking them? Are they just, am I opening a door and they're not walking through it? Like what's really going on here? Sometimes a middle performer is a middle performer only because there's something in the environment that's preventing them from being able to work at their best. Maybe we just don't really understand what their strengths are, or there's some part of their job that we could cleave off and and hand to somebody else and give them some new responsibilities that are a better fit. It's not that people are inherently bad or lazy. In most cases, what I find is it's something about it's something about the environment as well as reducing fear, um, coaching, taking a coaching approach. Coaches right. help identify obstacles, get them removed, boost yeah. self-esteem and confidence. Like leaders and managers have to do the same thing. So I, I, think, I think I'd think i be careful about how we look at middle level performers and say, this is not just because of who they are as people in most cases. It's some combination of that along with mm-hmm. the environment that we've constructed around them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, But I would never be afraid of, of communicating a elevated standard just because people might be afraid of excellence. Like if you're afraid of excellence, what are, you should actually be afraid of the opposite. Right.
0: I agree. Mediocrity.
2: Yeah. That's it's killing more companies. Mediocrity is than than sort of, you know, setting stretch goals that we can't attain as long as we do it in the right way. Uh, the other thing is that if you want top talent, you have to be prepared not just to pay for it in terms of, of compensation, but in terms of all of the things we've been talking about. You'd better have a great culture. You'd better have flexibility. You'd better have you know uh, A-plus leaders who they can learn from. You'd better be willing to offer multiple tours of duty and flexibility inside moving around your organization before you even pretend you can attract top talent. Because if they get in, you're lucky enough to land them and you can't provide that type of non-monetary compensation. They're out. They're out. You're exactly right, Susan. They're not gonna stick around. So, you know, do all the little things because they're not little. When it comes to people, there are no little things, right? It doesn't mean it's overwhelming. You don't do everything, but you gotta do the the things that you have to do. You gotta do them really well.
0: You gotta own that. You gotta be responsible for it. I agree.
1: Matt, I wanna dig there. How do people or companies show you that they're afraid of excellence?
2: I think in their actions you know, speak a lot louder than words. You know, First thing I might say is, even before we get to the actions, what does excellence mean? One of my favorite exercises to run with companies is to talk about a talent audit. When we say talent audit, let's, let's rate our people, Right? have the leaders go through and rate the people, and the numbers are wildly different from one another, It most often is because there's no calibration. There's no agreed standard as to what makes excellence. Some will go on sort of uh, social reputation. Others will go on you know, mechanical output or somewhere in between or something else. Social desirability could be any number of things. When you set a a rubric or a calibration and we say, now let's all make sure we understand what excellence even means here at XYZ Company, that's a good place to start. The second is what are we going to do about it? How do we communicate that? How do we hold people to that standard? How do we empower them to be able to reach the standard? It's okay if somebody's not um, in in a place where they're meeting a standard of excellence, but if they want to get there and they're like, I need help, then we have to give them that help. So to me, those are three key things uh, for sure is, do we understand what excellence even is? Have we communicated that standard to others in a way that they can understand and see where they stack up relative to it? And then are we empowering them and giving them every chance possible that we can and every resource that they need to be able to demonstrate that excellence? And if not, are we prepared to move on?
0: (laughs) And hold them accountable. That's the last piece of that puzzle, right? And and then make sure that you're following up with all that feedback loop.
2: Yeah, I have a lot of executives who come and say, my people just aren't accountable. I want them to demonstrate more accountability. And I said, well, what's the last major decision you let them make that's appropriate for their level? Like, oh, that would never happen. You're like, well. Okay. So, you know, it's like, we have to be careful. I don't want to say be careful what you wish for, but I think be cognizant about what that really means. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you, if you think about your individual contributors, they should absolutely have a very clear handle on, let's say, I like to think of time horizons, all the major decisions and all the major activities for today and probably this whole week, let's go to managers, the, the first line supervisors. Can they be responsible for a month? Like any decisions that may, that are impacting this month, Like, maybe that's okay. What about my directors? Maybe a quarter, VP and above, maybe half a year, maybe a year. And then the execs are thinking three to five years down the road. But if an executive comes in and says, I don't like that copy on that ad campaign. Let's let's fix this this way. You have jumped down from your three-year vistage point all the way down into today, this week. This thing was about to go and now I got to stay late to fix it because you didn't like something about it. And then you turn around and say, well, I can't my people be accountable. Well, you didn't communicate how you wanted it done, what the standard is, like something's breaking down. If you find you have to go down in the elevator, we like to say, and fix things all the time, something's not quite, you're just not going to get that accountability because people can't operate within their lane.
0: I love that. I want to shift gears if I can, because I'm, I'm just feeling like this has to be really so popular right now, right? This whole concept that you're laying out, this framework, five-by-five framework, uh, especially in all this world disruption, right? I feel like this has been the, the theme that I've been calibrating in my discussions is that this stuff has never been more important than it is today, given the magnitude of this disruption. I'm curious if you could share with our audience, what are you seeing on your side of the fence?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the people aspects of business have been disrupted in a way that we've never seen before. Uh, right. just, just this week, we were trying to, to figure out how do we put our hands on, on what people are feeling, meaning executives and, and talent leaders, what are they feeling? And there's really four major forces that are happening. The first is hybrid work. So the fact that we were all, for the most part, in the office or on premise, and then when the pandemic hit, anybody who could, we sent home and said, right. be remote. But now what's happening is more dangerous in terms of organizational performance and welfare, which is, we said, hey, isn't it great? We can all come back to work. And they said, that's great. We don't want to. We want to stay remote. So if you have even a third of your employees who are not going to come back because you're offering them the flexibility, that's a different dynamic. And what I say a lot of times what I've observed, sometimes leaders who weren't all that great at running teams before, when they were on-prem or were remote, well, now what do you do when you got five in the room and five on the Zoom? You're like, where does my attention go? How do I ensure equity? How are we going to communicate? You know, it's tough. It's really hard. So that first one of hybrid work is like, I don't think organizations have fully appreciated that it's not about technology infrastructure. It's about social and culture and organizational and operational infrastructure as much as those other things that we don't talk. And we don't talk about those as much. But the second one is the talent uh, and labor shortage. Employers are finding it exceptionally difficult to hire right now. There's just so many jobs that are unfilled. Sometimes people don't want the jobs. Like <laughs> there's all kinds of different reasons it's happening, but it's really causing a problem for employers when they just can't get people onto the bus. That's another major one. The skills gap, third one. Things are changing very rapidly. Business models are shifting, team structures are changing, hybrid work, digitization. There's all kinds of things that are have been accelerated by. the the pandemic and the social unrest and business model changes, how are we able to carve out time for our people to learn effectively to give them those opportunities? The skills gap is very real and it's causing very big problems. And then the final one is when we talk about something that's sometimes referred to as the turnover tsunami or the great resignation. There's this pent-up demand for people to leave their employers, but up until very recently, it hasn't been safe to do so. Hasn't been wise to go out and run a job search in the middle of the pandemic. Well, right. that's changing now, and now all of a sudden, what we're finding is that a lot of employees are saying, "I'm, I'm just ready for a change. I've been in my company, I've had my heads down. I need to make a change in my life. Maybe it's not even the employer's fault, but they're leaving in droves. So not only was I having trouble hiring people for my net new jobs, I'm having trouble now. I got to replace people and people with tribal knowledge and and industry experience." So it's causing this, this real strain on the people leaders in organizations. And that's where you know I, I feel like this talent optimization approach that we take and that has taught us so much is really timely right now because people are driving the business. And that means that people issues are presenting business challenges over the next 12 to 18
1: months. Does that change, like that huge amount of turnover, does that change how you should do any of those four steps? Or does it just mean, you know, we're just ramping it up and doing it more?
2: I think it, it, it doesn't necessarily change the step or the practice, but it changes the implications. So a lot of times when we think about it, I, I always talk about new team member, new team. You know, it's not the same old team now has you know a new team member. It's like, no, it's an entirely new team. So that might mean that a team that was cohesive, it had gelled, it was performing well before. Now all of a sudden, if we have lost a team member, replaced them with someone else, we might be tempted to say, look, our team's already functioning really well. Like let's just get them assimilated and move on. Well. No. <laughs> Go back and do some of that forming, storing, norming stuff. Go back and talk about behavioral preferences and differences and cohesion and redo some of your team building. Well, what are you talking about? This team's been around for eight years. Not like this, it hasn't. It's a brand new team to this other person or these two people. So I think uh, it, it probably is more than that we'd have to do it differently so much as we have to kind of redo some things that were working. Well, we've hired a lot of people. Not in this environment, you haven't. Not in a hybrid work environment. So even if your hiring funnel was like working great before the pandemic, and isn't it great to go back to work and things are back to normal? No, we're not back to normal. We're not going back to normal. You know, so I, I think it's probably going back and and stick. You know, going back to the foundations of these practices more than they they themselves will be different.
0: I think this is some of the biggest opportunity buried in this adversity, right? It's really going to thrust this whole, we call it leadership 2.0, which is basically everything you're describing today in regards to the people-centric, heart-centric, intrinsically motivated leadership strategies. Yeah, I feel like that's the silver lining. This stuff has been thrust to the head of the lineup. So all those collective heads that were buried in the sand because of how busy, 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 busy they were, right? On the autopilot, I feel like, yeah, like this is this is something that people can't not address. So where would these organizations, where would you suggest they start if they, this is something that they all of a sudden are realizing in the disruption, it has been an approach that they haven't really been valuing. And therefore, it's just like, they, it's new to them. Where do they start? Because that can be yeah, daunting, right? It
2: is. It, it seems daunting. And, and a lot of times people inside organizations seems very mysterious, but I think that there's frameworks go a long way. And the Talent Optimization Framework we've been talking about today, there's a tremendous amount of, of information at the website, talentoptimization.org. And it goes through each of the different uh, people practices that we've been talking about today around designing winning teams and inspiring employees to greatness. And it's very easy to go through and to consume a little bit of high-level information about each of these aspects. And there's even a certification available for talent professionals and, and business leaders who decide that they want to you know take a quick quiz and understand and demonstrate their their knowledge of of these different areas. I think that's a great place to start because for the first time, we've kind of codified down these important major people practices in a way that's easy to consume. It really demystifies. Otherwise, if you go to somebody and you said, hey, you need to be a better leader, go. Whoa, where do I start? Like, holy cow, how do I break this down? How do I approach this? How do I think about it? Um, That's where frameworks really help us. and, And there've been so many great ones over the years I think that we're at a phase of business right now where people are the last remaining competitive advantage.
0: Yes. The way
2: that we Love find that. is that, you know, access to resources of the past or access to capital or operational excellence—those things are all table stakes now. It's too mm-hmm. easy to go ahead and knock off the competitors, uh, you know, new product innovation. But the way that we manage people is the last remaining competitive differentiation. If you want to get good at the people part of your business, and you should. Mm-hmm. Then that's where I that's why I think there's so much attention and interest in talent optimization right
0: now. Right. Well, you can't control how much money's in the marketplace, especially during a world pandemic. So guess what you can control? Optimizing the potential of your people. <laughs> that's
2: right. And when you do that, whether you're in a recession, whether you're in, you know, a, a, a great and, and thriving economy or maybe a time of disruption, like we've been talking about today, won't mm-hmm. matter. You're, you, if you're great at managing people, you're gonna be just fine. But if you fail to make people a priority. If you abdicate your responsibility and say, oh, that's HR's job, that nothing, nothing's really going to help. And I think that the, those, those little worn spots, those little soft spots in an organization or in a given leader are going to really, you can't hide from them anymore because today's workforce has a choice and they're voting with their feet. They're either leaving organizations that they don't believe in or leaders they don't believe in. They have so much more mobility than they used to. You know, we've, we've really got to get it right. But again, this is not a doom and gloom story. It's not as hard as it used to be. We've got tools, we've got frameworks, we've got the information to be able to do it. We just need to make time to do it and realize that you can't be too busy to get better. You've got to dedicate yourself to your, the craft of leadership and you've got to put yourself out there and make yourself uncomfortable and, and just get it done.
0: Get it done. Right from the man who trained in the Marine Corps. (laughs) Just get her done. I love that saying too. What do you want your legacy to be with all of this talent optimization work? I'm curious. I
2: think that the, I I believe that we have leaders at every level. I talked about from an individual contributor, you're still a leader, right? I feel like the, the mission is to bring a talent optimization approach for leaders at every level. The legacy for me is about inspiring leaders to step on the path and to do the uncomfortable things to get better at their craft. I think that leadership is just such a powerful and transformative thing between people and I think it's the best way to make a sincere connection with other people and also to drive a result. And it might be a business result, it could be a nonprofit, could be in your community, doesn't matter. Every email, every conversation, every Slack message, every phone call every text message is a leadership opportunity. We just have to have the courage to take it. So my mission, my legacy would be if I can inspire other potential leaders to see the opportunity they have to lead better and more authentically, and they just engage a little bit with the tips, the content, the frameworks that are out there, um, that, that are just, there's really good stuff, but you have to seek it out and you have to apply it. If you do that and you're better for your community and your people around you, that to me is a great legacy. Get people on the path, get them doing the things that they need to do.
1: Ooh, you brought the heat today, Matt. I I love this interview. And Matt, for anyone listening who wants to connect and find more about you and what you do, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm pretty
2: active on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is hard to spell, but I'm easy to find on LinkedIn if you can. Uh, that's a, a great place. Um, on my website, I've I've got uh, resources available there too. Just my first name, last name. And then uh, I have my own podcast called Lead the People. And just lots of, of ways I'm trying to get leaders the content that they need to at least start on that journey. And uh, so, yeah, I would love to connect with anybody who's got follow-on questions. I know we've moved through a lot of material really quickly today. I definitely think LinkedIn is the best place to find me.
1: Absolutely. And we'll drop everything um, Matt's podcast and and LinkedIn and website in the podcast notes. So if you're looking for that, check down below. For us, obviously, subscribe to Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends and other leaders about it. And you can also, if you want to ask us a question about leadership mindset or management, anything like that, Leave us an, a rating and review on Apple and we're going to and drop your question in the review and we'll answer it on an upcoming Q&A episode. And lastly, the last thing we have, if you want to know more about what Susan's doing or what I'm doing, go to EliteHighPerformance.com slash leadership and you can find us there. Susan, is there anything you want to leave us with today?
0: I love it. Just get her done. That's what it's all about. You heard it here, folks, from the the Godfather himself. If, this, if we don't capitalize on this opportunity in and around all this disruption to really not only get our heads out of the sand, but keep them there, because that's what we said. It all starts with awareness of, you know, intelligence can't happen until you know what the problem is. Right. Um, I'm so, so, so happy that you're able to really bring the heat for our audience, because this is why we started this podcast during the world, uh, you know, pandemic and in and, and around all this disruption is that we really do believe that this is not only us getting back in the game, but this is a chance for us to change the way the game of life and business is played forever. So please share this amazing interview with your tribes, with your leaders. Help us spread this powerful, positive ripple effect of of all the things that Matt spoke about today.
1: I love it. And for me, I want to leave people with something that Matt said. Matt said people are the last remaining competitive advantage. And if you listened before earlier in the podcast, Matt also mentioned about if someone is not performing in the way of excellence, that it's not just about cutting bait with them. There's an opportunity to understand and to dig in with curiosity and find out what's not working with them and see if you can tweak it and make it so they are performing with excellence. And I love that assumption. And we've talked about the assumption that people are here to do the best that they can on the show over and over and over again. And so it's it's definitely about that, right? It's you as a leader, what do you think about your people? That belief there changes everything. When you turn from people are lazy or people are not gonna do the best thing, to people are, There it is. Matt, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much. I'm honored to have had the chance to talk to you both, Susan and Rob. I'm a huge fan of your work, and and thanks
1: again for having me. Thank you, everyone. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll see you all next week.
0: Bye, everyone.